Before we get going into your Hockey IQ podcast episode, I want to thank our sponsor, Rapid Shot. Rapid Shot is the smart shooting lane. Uh, it's like a batting cage for hockey players. Very cool. Tracks your shot in three ways. Accuracy, shot speed, and reaction time. Uh, easy to use. Uh, actually, I used it when I played and was growing up. Very easy. Simply scan your phone in, select your settings, and start shooting. Uh, you can see your stats on the app and online. And you can check them out at rapidshot.com. Uh, great small business. I actually grew up with one of the owner's sons and have played with all the family members by now. Uh, just in local pickups here in Ohio. Very cool local business. Awesome product. I love it. I know quite a few NHLers have them in their homes. Uh, a lot of D1 programs have it at their rinks. So you have to check this out. Rapidshot.com. Check it out. Rapidshot, thank you so much for sponsoring our podcast. On this episode of the Hockey IQ podcast, we have Ross McLean. He is one guy who's clearly been around the block a few times and a lot to say. So I, I'm not even going to preface this with what I loved about it because it was just great all the way around. And uh, we definitely went a little bit longer than we should. I mean, I have no idea how this guy's packed so much life experience into his life. Like he's seen so much, done so much has so many different amazing stories and just anecdotes. I learned a ton from this. Uh, come for the, uh, you know, Finland life experience. Stay for the Kale McCarr stories. Like, there's so much to love in this episode. And, and I was amazed at how large of a resume he has and how much he's done. Again, working with Kale McCarr, Dylan Holloway, who was in the first round this year. And then he put all that background in, like, 30 seconds. It was amazing. Right. Yeah. One of the coolest episodes we've done, we barely scratched the surface. We'll have to have him back on because otherwise we could have gone for three, four hours. No sweat. Super easy. So without further ado, let's get into the episode with Ross. Welcome to the podcast, Ross. Uh, super excited to have you here. You're a well-traveled man. I've, uh, I've gotten around, that's for sure. Super excited to have you on. Well... I uh, know you a little bit, obviously, and same with Dan, but uh, maybe give the listeners a quick background on uh, those who might not know your story and what you're up to now. So, I mean, uh, kind of in a nutshell, uh, if you can really call it that, it's a big nutshell, but uh, I uh, grew up uh, originally born in Halifax, Nova Scotia, kind of grew up all over Eastern Canada, really kind of developed my love for hockey in London, Ontario. It's hockey hotbed a lot of people love hockey there we ended up going back to Halifax my family so I graduated high school there uh, started university there then decided to head over to Europe to come to continue my university play a little bit uh, do some coaching uh, learn from some people there one thing led to another I got hooked up with the double IHF and some international federations uh, which got me involved in some international development projects which got me involved in the scouting world uh, which brought me back to Canada. Uh, I scouted uh, for a few years with the International Scouting Services, helped them develop their uh, programs, including their their coach and scout mentorship program, was head scout for them for a while, uh, then uh, consulted for some teams, joined Hockey Canada, and uh, now I'm, I'm doing my own thing. I've got my own uh, company uh, that's focused on minor hockey association development, uh, and then uh, I'm also working for the Calgary Hitmen at this point. So, uh, Long story short, that's that's been kind of the pathway to, that's uh, sort of brought me to this point. 
before we dig into any of that, and I want to get through all of it, tell us the story, the origin story of probably the best elite prospects avatar I've ever seen. And it's also your Twitter bio of you and a Team Canada jersey and a cowboy hat. <laughs> it's, it's actually, it's a, it's a Corona sombrero. And uh, that was from uh, right after the gold medal game in the, the Pan American tournament, which is a double IHF event that uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, really fall into uh, in one of my, during my time with Hockey Canada. Uh, the, the story there, and it's a great one, is that Hockey Canada had essentially promised the, the Mexican Ice Hockey Federation that they would send a team uh, to represent Canada in this tournament designed to kind of promote hockey in the, in South America. Uh, so, uh, it, it basically got put on the back burner until the last minute. And then Bob Nicholson was in Sochi and called me and said, Hey, we've, we've got to send a team down here. I need you to do whatever you can. If you end up playing in it yourself, I'm fine with that. So we ended up getting a group of kind of guys that were just finishing playing kind of minor pro levels uh, all together as a team from around Canada. We went down and we were team Canada in, in Mexico city for this double IHF uh, sanctioned event. So I, uh, I, I was the captain of that team. It was a blast. We had some great players. Uh, we had to take it really seriously because it was, it did factor into the rankings and, you know, you're going to take a big hit if you, if you lose a game to Brazil, as uh, Canada in the rankings. So uh, we managed to get through the tournament. Mexico gave us a bit of a scare, but we ended up beating them in the final uh, pretty convincingly. But it was a great tournament. They continue to have that tournament. Canada's not a part of it anymore. Um, but uh, that's where you see countries like Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, uh, and Mexico, uh, and some other countries that are starting to get involved. So it's a really important tournament for building hockey in South America. And uh, it, was, it was an honor uh, a very lucky honor to actually be able to go down and, and participate in the first one. So that's unbelievable. What a great story. Were, were people on any of those teams? Like, did they think that you guys were like NHL stars, like from team camp? You know what I mean? Well, it was right after the Sochi Olympics. So, uh, the timing, yeah. Right? So, you know, we were in Mexico city and yeah. there was, there was lineups of people to see us, uh, for the games and everywhere we went, people were asking us for autographs and, uh, you know, and, and Mexico city is a massive city. We did well, one of the days off, a bunch of us went out to a, a little restaurant in the old town in Mexico city and people were coming up to us and asking us for autographs there. So we were like pseudo celebrities for 10 days in Mexico city. And it, it was, it was awesome. It was great to see people kind of latch onto it, but yeah, it was, you know, people bringing me hats to sign after the games. I made sure I brought lots of little things I could give away, you know, the, the hockey Canada pins and so on. And, um, but yeah, every, every game, everyone was treating us like we were NHL superstars. So you need to start a team down in uh, Mexico City, first NHL team there. Oh, there's a market, I'll tell you. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if it would be sellouts right away, but uh, that's a growing sport down there, and, and the Mexican Ice Hockey Federation uh, has done a really good job in, in trying to build the sport down there. You don't think that, that uh, you know, you don't think of Mexico when you think of hockey, but you know, their, their national team, their first two lines especially, are, are quite good. They're, you know, guys that have had – uh, you know, four or five year careers in major junior in Canada and NCAA players, and um, you know, a couple of guys that have gone over and played a few games in the KHL, things like that. So uh, it, it's coming. And it's one of the great things to see when you go to places like that is how the game grows. Excited though. I think that's amazing how it's growing beyond just the normal hockey borders. And I think you've, you've had a front row seat to it being through the eyes of hockey Canada and, even some time in Finland, uh, if I remember correctly, 
you graduated from the Sport Institute of Finland, which is a pretty big honor. And uh, what, what did you learn through your world travel so far, whether it be Mexico uh, or Finland or well, I'll, I'll tell you the, the decision to go to Finland and that Sport Institute was life changing. Um, I was really, again, fortunate to get on the radar as that program was beginning. So I ended up going over. Um, I was the second or third Canadian to go was another Canadian in my group. Um, and they were only taking about 14 people a year into that program at the time. And, uh, it was just ahead of its time. It's still ahead of its time. It's still going. And, um, you know, to go over at that point, uh, I was still pretty young and immature at that time. And obviously the lure of possibly going over to play a little bit was there, but I ended up coaching a lot more than playing when I got there. Uh, and then doing a lot more stuff because it was, it's the program in, in Viramaki, Finland. Uh, it's about 160 kilometers north of Helsinki in the middle of the Finnish forest. And it's just a sports paradise. And the Finns are highly advanced in terms of their grasp on athletic development and the physiological aspects of training athletes, not just hockey players, but hockey is the predominant sport there. So it gets most of the resources and most of the attention. You wonder why a nation of 4 million people is able to produce the quality uh, of players that they have. It's because you know the, you go to a school and a, and a seven-year-old kid can can dictate back to you what long-term athletic development models look like. You know, you come to Canada and the U.S. and you talk about long-term athletic development models, you're lucky if people have even heard that acronym of LTAD before. So, you know, Hockey Canada and, and USA Hockey have done a good job of trying to incorporate that into it. But over there, it's, it's a way of life. Like, people buy into it. In North America, there's, there's almost a, oh, you know, it's an interesting tool, but maybe we can skip this part. But it's all based on physiology, and you can't advance your physiology. You can't skip ahead in it. So the Finns get that. They buy into it. Uh, and to go over there and learn from them and to learn about those procedures was like being handed a golden goose. And really, there's not a day that goes by that I don't, go back to something I learned in my two and a half, three years there in Finland, um, that they just absolutely pounded us with just this incredible knowledge that at the time, you know, we had no idea what to do with, but now, you know, 15 years later, uh, I'm using it every single day and I've been sending kids there, you know, kids that want to get involved in coaching, kids that want to make a difference, want to have an impact on the game. I just turn them over to that program all the time. I got a bunch of them that are back here working for me. Guys have gone on to, you know, become uh, coaches in the KHL and, and, and major junior. And uh, so, you know, I've got this little army of followers now uh, guys that have gone to this program that think the same way. And a lot of the stuff that we try to do, you can use these guys cause they get it. They, they've been taught that way. So uh, I ended up in Finland very much at the right time. And uh, I, I really haven't looked back like that. I can't say enough. Uh, and whenever anybody asked me sort of what the tipping point for me was, it was that decision to go over to Finland to do that. And uh, I was lucky, but I worked hard before that. I was coaching in Nova Scotia and, and uh, the, the provincial branch there had, had noticed that I was really in, into it as a young guy and they wanted to push me forward. And that's what got me first aligned with Hockey Canada. And they were the ones that turned me on to this program. It was uh, a really interesting story is actually it was my dad's 50th birthday party. And uh, I got an email. It was my very first interaction ever with Paul Carson, who eventually became my boss and one of my major mentors. 
And uh, at, at the same party, I'd read this email and we had a whole bunch of people over for my dad's birthday. And uh, one of my dad's really good friends came to me and said, hey, I was online and I saw this program and it made me think about you. And it was the exact same program. So I'd never heard about it before. And then in two days or in, in one day, I hear about it twice. So uh, right away, you know, I sent back a message saying, yeah, I'm interested. Give me more details. I got connected with them, applied, got in. Uh, and, and then the rest is kind of history. How old, old were you when you went? I would have been 23 when yeah, that awesome. when that came around. So yeah, I mean, I was I was working as a bartender at a at a keg steakhouse, and so it was a bit of a, a bit of a change and just coaching coaching youth hockey. Yeah, yeah. So it, it was one of those like you know crossroads moments. Like, do you really want to go down this path? And uh, as much as I wanted to say yeah, absolutely, it, it was a harder decision than then you know I'll, I'll make it out to be but uh there was a lot to weigh in doing it but i i have the second that i landed in and took a deep breath of the finish air which is probably the cleanest in the world uh i had this overwhelming feeling that i was in the right spot that i was going where i needed to go and uh, it still feels like a second home uh, i still am really close with a lot of people there and i still take any opportunity i can to get get back there it's just it was a magical place for me and it's always going to have been the kind of sort of the birthplace of really my career. That's amazing. What a great story. I, uh, I'm speaking from USA hockey, obviously you from Canada hockey or hockey, Canada. I'm curious, like, uh, I noticed last year when I went to a, I think it was level four coaching clinic, like they were really hammering how Finland is ahead of the curve with this stuff. So like, I, it's definitely, you know, become noticeable within, you know, the top levels of USA hockey that, like you said, 4 million people in Finland, what are, they're obviously doing something right. Right. So I'm curious, you know, just as a blanket statement, like where, where are we going? Where's hockey Canada, where's team or, you know, USA hockey going to get to like that level of commitment? Well, you know, I, I would say right now we're kind of, we're kind of treading in dangerous waters. We're seeing a lot more private entrepreneurship in the sport. Um, we're seeing a lot more competition-based programming. We're seeing a lot more early specialization models where kids are hockey players. They're not doing other, other sports. Uh, and that's happening earlier and earlier and earlier. And that's, that's actually dangerous with hockey. As much as I'm a huge supporter of kids playing hockey, I'm very much against hockey being the only sport kids play, uh, especially pre-puberty. You know, we want kids playing more sports and what Finland is really doing better than everybody else is they're taking the competition based models away and they are making sure kids are athletes. They're focusing on making sure kids are well-rounded, that they have a really broad range of skills uh, and, and that's keeping them healthier. That's allowing them to adapt better through puberty. And then uh, it's allowing them to have better adaptations after puberty in terms of training. So they're really setting them up for success. And in North America, we're still under that, that mindset for the most part that uh, has always kind of helped us uh, have success and that we have the sheer numbers and we can kind of will ourselves to victories. Well, now you're coming up against a country that has that same mindset. They, they have the numbers of kids that are playing the sport, but they're, they're actually setting them up to be significantly stronger uh, and more adaptable, versatile human beings and athletes. So that's really kind of where the, the real shift is, is Finland gets that, you know, scoreboards don't light up in Finland for the most part until the kids are, you know, 13, 14 years old, they're not seeing the score go up. So they're playing games, but they're not, they're not, you know, serious competition. They're focused on skills. When you get over there, uh, everybody's base skill set is significantly higher. 
I remember going over there and, you know, being a, a decent level player, I remember going over there and stepping on the ice for just a shinny with some of my teachers from my program. And everybody was just unbelievably skilled. They could all do these things that, you know, really only the elite players in Canada could do. And that's from that, that base. So they really do a bottom up approach where it's, it's let's focus on that, making sure all our kids are athletes. Uh, and then, you know, we'll get them to specialize in hockey later, but most of their top players are multi-sport athletes well into their teens. Some of them still are by the time they get drafted in the NHL. And really the first time they decide to not be multi-sport athletes or to shift away from being uh, multi-sport athletes is when they, they throw on an NHL Jersey. So, you know, that's a mindset that is really giving them an advantage. And it's a really hard sell here where we have so many people that have bought into the stigma that, Kids need to play more games. They need to have statistics. They need to be seen. Uh, they need to win. You know, they need to know how to play the game. When, when really, what we're finding is that's that's not how it is at all. All the top players that I've been working with in Canada over the last twelve years are all kids that have understood this. You know, uh, Kale McCarr, I had the the great pleasure of coaching him when he was uh, 13, 14 years old and up, and he one of the first kids that I ever met that just got it. You know, he knew that hey, playing Triple A as the worst defenseman might not be the best thing for me playing double A as the best defenseman, I'm going to get more reps. I'm going to get to play the game the way I want to play it. And that's how he handled things all the way up. And you look at where he is and, you know, Jake Sanderson kind of followed in his footsteps, gets drafted fifth overall this year, almost does the exact same thing that, that Kale did. So, uh, you know, there, there is a method to that madness. Um, everyone seems to think that it's all about a pathway and you follow a pathway and that's, what's going to create what you, what you need, your desired results, but that's, that's not how it works. And you've got to pay attention to the physiology. You've got to pay attention, especially when they're pre pre puberty uh, of setting them up for adaptation as opposed to trying to create adaptation early. So how should we train or look at athletes pre puberty? Um, is it just, we keep them moving. Is there any kind of special things that you're trying to do with the athletes that you're currently training? Uh, how's that approach come from maybe Finland? And then how do you put your spin on it? Uh, just in general, how, how do you think that should go? So again, really what's happened here is Finland took the long-term athletic development model, which is not new, which has been around for a long, long time. They took that and they tweaked it to perfect it. They actually follow it. And the key there is that they felt like it was designed around the physiology of age groups for kids. You know, your, your zero to four learning coordination skills and you're getting the basic movement patterns down and then on and on and on and on and on. In North America, we've kind of moved away from that. So to, to, to really gain that advantage back, to try and realign things, like the, the roadmap exists already. It's there. And it's very, very good because that's exactly what Finland's using. And they're not just using it in hockey. I mean, you look at the NBA draft and they've had first round draft picks in the NBA. You know, they have uh, high level, elite level soccer players playing in the top levels of the world. The, the, the amount of high level athletes that they built that aren't just hockey players is incredible. And again, it's a nation of 4 million people. I'm in Alberta right now. We have almost the exact same demographics in comparison to Finland for everything. And if you put Alberta athletics and Alberta is probably one of the most progressive provinces in Canada in terms of, of this, this is where hockey Canada is headquartered. Uh, you know, it, it still doesn't hold a candle to what Finland's doing. So, you know, it's, it's not about reinventing the wheel. It's about actually following the plan that, is really good, but nobody follows it. The, the problem right now is that everybody sees it. Oh yeah, that's a really good idea, but it's more than an idea. It really is a roadmap to success for young kids. And if we follow that a little bit closer, then that's what 
that's what's going to create the advantage. So anything that I'm a part of, I kind of use that as my roadmap. That's the, okay, where are we? This is what we want to do. I get a lot of resistance from parents who think their kids are advanced in that. But the thing about long-term athletic development is it's based on the physiological development of kids in stages. And you can't, you can't cheat that. So moving from one zone to another zone stage to another stage doesn't make any sense. That's what holds kids back. That's what actually creates detriments to them being able to adapt to training further on. That's where we see kids with impingements, short hamstrings, chronic joint issues, and you know, they haven't even hit puberty yet. Well, that doesn't go away because your body adapts, your central nervous systems adapt during, uh, during puberty and your states, your body's in a state of recovery. So you're never going to be able to adapt from that. It's heartbreaking. You know, when you see kids that can't do particular things after a certain age, well, it's not to say you can't do it, but it's, it is, it is closer to impossible than possible. So, you know, we've got to pay more attention to what we're doing with young kids, making sure that they are more athletically inclined, more flexible, uh, more adaptable, more versatile, that they work more muscle groups. They don't overuse things, but then the mental side of it too, is that they, you know, if you really love hockey, that's great. You don't like other sports and you only want to do hockey. That's fine. Apply hockey to other sports. You know, hockey is an invasion game uh, where the result, the goal is to get from one end of the ice to the other end, uh, the one end of the playing surface to the other end of the playing surface to, to get points. Well, soccer's that, basketball's that, lacrosse is that. There's all sorts of sports that you can apply hockey training to without actually being on the ice playing hockey. And you're working stabilizing muscle groups, which are going to help you avoid injury, help you resist injury, and help you overcome injury once you ultimately do get an injury. But that stabilizing muscle group aspect of it is extremely important as we come through puberty, because then your body's not in a state of recovery. Your body is primed and ready to actually really essentially uh, adapt further afterwards. But if you go through that that process of puberty and things change and your body's in recovery. Well, there's no other window in your life where, you know, you go through something like that, where you're going to be able to optimize your chances for adaptation later on. So it's a missed opportunity. And, and that's one of the key messages that everybody needs to kind of grasp right now. I really like how you phrased something earlier. You said that, you know, the U S and Canada have such big numbers that they kind of will their way towards success um, just because of the, you know, the demographics that they have. I'm curious if you think that that size um, is almost like a detriment in a sense, you know what I mean? Like it's kind of a leading question, but like, I'm, I know that like in USA hockey, they've talked about kind of splitting up into different regions, right? So like you have the mid Atlantic region or whatever, um, do you think that like compartmentalizing it makes it easier or harder? Cause I, I get where you're saying and how, you know, it's like moving a, you know, a cruise ship as opposed to like a, you know, whatever, a speedboat. Cause you've got to get so many people under this umbrella for there to be any sort of like impactful long-term change. Right. I mean, that all comes from leadership and I'm not saying that there's been poor leadership because there's been outstanding leadership in both countries for many, many years around it. But it, it is, it's a, like, I love that analogy that it's like trying to move a cruise ship as opposed to, you know, maybe pushing a raft. And, you know, we'd like to think that we can hit the reset button and say, no, 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 this is how you have to do things. But, you know, I, I learned this very quickly at Hockey Canada from, from Bob Nicholson and Scott Smith that you can't do that. There is no reset button. You can't just say, no, we're now we're going to do things this way. And I've seen it, you know, just when we tried to adjust the, um, the, the body checking uh, ages in Canada, the resistance was unbelievable. Um, when we tried to move the kids to cross ice hockey uh, at the, at the younger age groups, the resistance was 
it was huge. And, uh, you know, that's also from some of the people that you would expect to be on your side, regardless of the decisions you make. So, you know, some of the provincial branch leadership fought that. And, uh, you know, that that's where you run into those problems about, you know, trying to move that mountain. So it, it does, it happens in small things. I do like the idea of compartmentalizing um, in Finland, how they do it, which works really well, is they have a position with each club that's called the head of coaching. And the head of coaching is a paid position. And it's a prestigious position. So the head of coaching for every club, uh, and they're a club-based system as opposed to a minor hockey association-based system, which also has its pros and cons. But um, their role is they're ultimately tied to the federation. So the federation gives them particular things that they want to make sure that all the coaches uh, in their clubs are getting. They then have the responsibility to select coaches that are in line with that train those coaches on that, pass that information on. And so you get some real good continuity. And continuity is really the most important word here when it comes to uh, developing minor hockey associations and, and creating structures for youth athletes is there has to be some element of consistency. There has to be some element of, uh, of standards that are in place. And that's really a little bit easier to do when you start to break down the groups. When you look at Canada and the U.S. and just the amount of kids that are playing hockey and then the sheer geography of it all uh you know putting people in place in those areas that could ultimately lay that out um would be the most beneficial situation that i've come across so far backing up ever so slightly maybe what are some of those pros and cons between it being club-based uh versus what we do here and maybe it has something to do with how far we're spread out and how much territory you really need to cover i mean that's a lot of miles you're covering all of Canada versus covering all of Finland. Uh, is that something to do with it? Is it more of a cultural thing or it's curious it's to see what probably, the differences are and what the pros and cons are. Yeah. It's probably more to do with a cultural thing. I mean, uh, European club sports are bigger um, and, and club sports usually go because you have a, a professional team that drives everything and then everything floods down from there. Um, so that, that tends to help. Now you're going to have bigger clubs. And again, I'll use Finland as an example. You have the, the Jokerit club, which is the Helsinki club and, and they're huge. You know, they play in the KHL now. When I was there, they were still in the Finnish league, but, uh, they have youth teams. They have uh, an under 20 team an under 18 team an under 16 team and so on and so on and so on all the way down to, to beginners. So kids come into those clubs. So when you have a head of coaching involved in that, that head of coaching is involved with the pro team all the way down, but you have, also, you have sponsorships, you have a lot of revenues that are coming in from that program that can help a club like that. So what you see with Helsinki, Jokerit, is that they're able to recruit kids from other areas in the country that are high-level players because they have the funds and the resources to offer them a little bit more. So kids can kind of travel. The borders are kind of open, and they can go where it kind of fits best for them, especially when they get into those you know, really competitive years. Um, the, the, the negative aspect of that is that if you're a kid in that area, that's kind of your option. And if you can't get involved with that option, then you're gonna have to go somewhere else for another. So there's lots of smaller clubs in the area. And in terms of North America, you know, it's, it's all about recruitment and retention. And, you know, we have varying degrees of social class and, and economy right now. And to, with a sport like hockey, that's expensive to play. Um, there's a lot of barriers to entry. And we need to remove some of those things. So that's where a, a volunteer-based uh, minor hockey structure fits a little bit better. The cost is reduced a little bit, um, but you're also sacrificing a little bit in terms of maybe uh, the organizational resources. So that's where 
you know, Hockey Canada and USA Hockey have, have tried to invest some resources, try and make sure that there's some people in those places that can help with that. But it's just so, it's so big that, that it's hard to manage. So, I mean, the club-based structure works really, really well when you're in, in the club, but getting into the club can be difficult sometimes. Whereas a minor hockey structure, volunteer-based, you know, there's lots of opportunity for everybody. Try to reduce the cost as much as possible. Try to create programs that are involved in getting, getting kids into the game. Um, but you lose out a little bit in terms of that idea of having, you know, um, real professional coaches. You know, there's not a lot of high-level coaches that just randomly volunteer their time to come work with teams, you know, five nights of the week. It just, it doesn't happen. It's, it's unfortunate. Um, but, you know, when you specialize in it, and I'm certainly guilty of this, when you specialize in it, it, it becomes all your time. You have to make a living at some point. So, you know, you got to create some sort of cost structure there that fits for minor hockey associations. That's not going to exploit the kids for profit and uh, allows you to really give the resources and information and be a, be a building block uh, as opposed to something that's, that's in the way. So those are kind of the main two, uh, there's lots of others, but really the main two drivers uh, between club and, and uh, a minor hockey volunteer based structure are, are kind of the, that aspect, really the barriers to entry. And then, you know, trying to keep the cost of the sport affordable and, and accessible to as many people as possible. It seems like a lot of thoughtful people in the sport have come to this conclusion. I happen to agree that we play too many games that like competition at a young age is prioritized over skills, like you were saying in Finland. And I'm wondering if the cat is out of the bag and if there's any way, you know, we can like kind of bring it back to a more reasonable number. I, Cause I think back to like when I was, when, when I was a kid, you know, 20 years ago, whatever, like we didn't play that many games and the number that we played then is like the norm, like at a very young age in America now. So I'm, I'm speaking for, you know, I'm in Columbus, Ohio, but I'm curious what you think about, you know, just like the number, sheer number of games and the importance that, you know, culturally we place on games and maybe where that's going. Well, it's really interesting. And, you know, the, the, the real way to change that, like the reset button with that one does happen every year because new kids come into the sport every year. And when you introduce them to one thing, that's all they ever know. So they don't know this other aspect. So, you know, if we really want to make a change, it happens basically, you know, with the U7 categories. Like, hey, let's institute something with them and then let's continue it on as they, as they proceed. You can try it with other groups. You're going to get resistance. But, you know, most people are just going to adapt. That's what happens. You know, that's what happened with body checking. It took a year. Everyone adapted. You never hear anybody talking about it now. It took about a year and a half for the cross ice hockey in Canada to adapt at the younger age groups. And now very rarely do you hear people complain about it. Everyone kind of says, oh, yeah, this is better. So there's always that resistance to change. Uh, so, you know, it basically just you got to realize and plan strategically when the best time to to institute those changes are as opposed to seasonal structure. Again, that goes back to consistency. Our seasonal structures in North America are all over the map. Hockey's become a 12 month sport. You've got your, you know, your regular winter, fall, winter seasons. Now, now you've got spring hockey, you've got all these summer tournaments and all these things that happen. And that those are really the, the big problems right now is that the whole season is a competitive game structure. And then you have people that brand that as development which it is the polar opposite of development. So, you know, really, yeah, we should be taking uh, stock of the fact that it is a cultural thing. I mean, the kids, the kids love the games, obviously. Um, they don't necessarily love the competition. 
And there's ways to have the games where we're still doing skill. And that's what Finland's really kind of done with their young ages really, really well to get kids interested in the sport is they do skills, but every skill session that you do has some element towards the end of small area games and actually playing, having fun. And that's what the kids remember. They remember the last drill of practice, you know, so you could do boring, tedious skill development, but again, guys are getting really good at hiding that stuff now in terms of making drills more fun. And it's not just standing in place and, you know, hopping over a stick all the time. It's, there's, there's a lot of shooting, a lot of passing, a lot of element to it. But, um, you know, that's the key is making sure that the kids fall in love with actually being on the ice, coming to the rink. And it's, it's really the parents that miss the competition. The kids, the kids don't really care about the competition. Competition to kids is stressful. And it's great when they succeed. They have a lot of fun. They, you know, they love posing with trophies and things like that. But the risk of doing that is, you know, you have an eight-team tournament. One team's going to get to do that. The other seven teams aren't. And that's not a good enough ratio uh, for, you know, trying to teach kids to love the sport. So we're really not utilizing our resources or looking at our outcomes in a positive way. So is there a way to almost take score of the skills being utilized rather than goals being scored? Or is there ways of using that as a youth organization, especially if you've got like house league where you totally can control the factors that are going into that? Or is that something that hockey Canada is thinking of? Because I know it's something that I've done personally we do um, that too. with a lot of my practices is yeah. who cares about goals and assists? You know, how many times are you making cross ice passes over the Royal road before you shoot things like that? Yeah, I mean, there are ways, uh, you know, the quantifiable measures and keeping score of things are, are all ways to definitely, you know, help kids take stock of their own performance. Um, you know, but really at the, the younger ages, it should be, you know, just teaching them to identify what's a positive play and what's what's not a positive play. So, you know, I like things, you know, like you're talking about, you know, completed passes. Um, I like things like loose puck races, you know, stuff like that. All those kinds of things are really good for kids because, you know, that's in the games they play themselves. A lot of that stuff is in there. Uh, you know, they play games where they have to keep a ball up in the air as many times as they can with each other. They, they play, you know, they, uh, they do tons of races. They love racing for things. So, you know, when we're talking about kids, yeah, that kind of stuff, again, you quantify it. But if you, if you make it too competitive, again, it becomes stressful. And that's not what we want sport to be. If you want kids to be elite, they need to love the game. They need to have an intrinsic motivation to come to the rink all the time. And, you know, it needs to be their happy place. And that happens through, you know, again, just really good, positive personal interactions, making them confident with their skills and then letting them go and try and be creative. And that's the type of stuff that, you know, we should be teaching and putting, putting more emphasis on with, with youth hockey. Uh, and then as those kids get into competition-based streams, and again, all this is in long-term athletic development plan. Like it's all there. It's, Hey, we want to make sure that these kids are able to do this and that this is why. Um, so, you know, people really need to take a deep dive into those documents, long-term athletic development, long-term player development. You hear LTPD model all the time. USA hockey talks about it all the time. Hockey Canada talks about it all the time. But the fact of the matter is, is that most people just glance over it. They don't, take the deep dive into it to really figure out what it is, what it means and how it actually helps kids. Cause it, it's a fantastic roadmap to what is physiologically and mentally the most important things for kids at the particular age group and stage of development that they're in. Wonderful. I like that. Like that a lot. Um, I think Sweden even dropped it even further down. I think they're only doing fourth ice in the offensive zone. So instead of cross ice, they're even cutting that in half for the youngest ages and, 
making it even smaller. So there's so many puck touches. Uh, you might know more than I am on that one, but I guess I'm kind of curious more about your uh, coordinator role with Hockey Canada. It's obviously a lot of stuff we've already talked about. Maybe it's something you can add there, what you took away and how that's led into your role currently uh, helping the Calgary Hitman and uh, the guys that you're working with, what kind of ways you go around improving their skills. So, you know, I, I 100% relished my time with Hockey Canada. It was fantastic. And, and mostly because of the people that I got to work with and learn from while I was there. My role was a coordinator of development programs there, and it was to design programs for kids that we could, you know, pass on to minor hockey associations, that we could show different models of things, you know, like one of my biggest tasks was, was combating um, spring hockey competition-based models, which is obviously something I'm very passionate about. I had learned a lot about in Finland, so it just fit really well. Um, so I tried to create more kind of hybrid training models that were based around multi-sport and uh, less about games and tournaments and competitions. It was, hey, for every hour you're going to be on the ice, we're going to do an hour or two of off-ice. And that hour or two of off-ice could have been things like we're going to do soccer skills and learn how to apply it to hockey. Uh, we're going to do badminton and learn why it's such a beneficial uh, sport for goaltenders to play, you know. Uh, things like that, teaching the different movement patterns. And then we do a lot of physical literacy, uh, functional movements and neuromuscular stuff as well, which is always just great to do with kids at different levels and they have fun with it. And there, there are ways to kind of hide it, to make it an enjoyable experience. So th those are a couple of things that I, you know, I got involved with at Hockey Canada that were great, but uh, you know, a lot of the language that I, I speak um, was really just reinforced there from, you know, learning, getting that kind of seed planted in Finland, getting a great look at some of these things. Um, but, uh, you know, Paul Carson and Corey McNabb with Hockey Canada, Corey McNabb, um, I always call him the guru and he's the, he's the director of, of player and coach development for Hockey Canada. And he may be the game's best kept secret. The guy's a genius. The guy just absorbs everything. Um, you know, most high level NHL players know him because, you know, you get to lockouts or situations like we're in now, if they were able to travel, uh, he's the guy they call. Um, he's one of those guys, I think if you ever just like stepped out of the office in hockey Canada and whispered that he was even slightly unhappy, there's, there's 31 NHL teams calling him, maybe even 32 now calling him to, to, to try and, you know, obtain his services. He's, he's that good and he gets it and he, and he looks at what these other countries are doing and he pays attention to it and he's highly involved in international development, trying to pass that message on. Um, you know, so I give, you know, Paul Carson who recently retired, uh, and, and Corey McNabb just most of the credit in terms of uh, the real success hockey Canada's had and and they've done it uh, often handcuffed you know people think in Canada you get this carte blanche to do what you want with hockey development but it's it's extremely restrictive and political when you get to that level and those are two guys that just navigated those relationships phenomenally well uh, hired some really great people in that development department uh, threw in a bad apple with me and still were able to still were able to kind of get some some really good uh, programming and, and concepts going. So, um, you know, that's, that's fundamentally um, what's kind of the, the most important aspect is, is having that leadership that gets that and is trying regardless of the roadblocks uh, and U-turns that happen uh, of making sure that, that, that these types of, of thoughts get planted in people like my bad apple mind and then, you know, I get to go be a mad scientist with it now at times and, and come up with things and figure out things that work out with kids. So, you know, that, that time with Hockey Canada was amazing just for that. Uh, you know, again, I could rhyme off a whole bunch of people's names here. Kevin Figsby, Greg Robertson, Mike Bear. There's just some unbelievable people there that you could just 
you get different personalities, different views of the game, different backgrounds. Uh, so that, that, that breadth really, really helps someone like me um, gain confidence and, and different viewpoints of things to solve problems. And, you know, that's how I like to see myself uh, as a problem solver and uh, always trying to learn to figure out better ways to deal with problems. So that's, that's really kind of what I took from um, my experience with Hockey Canada. And then moving on into my own, you know, private enterprise and becoming what I hate, um, I've tried to apply those things. You know, Hockey Canada wanted to move away from the development programs. I wanted to keep it going because I thought we're on to something. And so I've kept that going. I've aligned myself with minor hockey associations. I don't work with other private companies that run you know super leagues and and spring teams and so on i i just that's not something i believe in so i try to have a an alternative model um i try to be very inclusive in it and very flexible with it so it's it's very much a differentiation strategy but it's also something that works for particular people and when they when they grab onto it and they're able to you know utilize the benefit of it they they can kind of punch their own tickets and that's really kind of what i want to i want people to have control of their own development which i think a lot of people um, especially in Canada, sometimes feel like in a minor hockey structure, they don't, you know, you end up on a team with a coach that, you know, you don't think is very good or can't help you or, um, you know, I, I wanted to, again, be someone that could fix those problems. So I lined myself with minor hockey. I said, hey, if you're finding yourself, your coaches need training, bring us in, we'll help you out. We'll make it cost effective for your association. We'll keep it within your budget and we'll provide as much value as possible. And then through that, I've been able to recruit really high level people that have gone over and done the same program I did that have been, you know, coaching for years um, that have been involved with national federations or provincial uh, branches. And then they're just passing on that same message, the same stuff that we've been working for so long to try and do. So it's just, it's happening at a, at a smaller bit, but I'm starting to see what I saw with the competition based models happen now with develop development based models, and especially with the pandemic. And it became a huge opportunity because no one was allowed to play games. The people that usually, didn't do development stuff because they couldn't play games, started doing development stuff. And most of them absolutely loved it. And it's not just with me, it's with other people that run development programs. All these kids that were never exposed to that were all of a sudden now doing that and saying, whoa, this is great. And then the parents are realizing, oh, maybe it is my fault that the kids only, or that they, they were only playing games. Maybe that is only for me and it's not for them. Maybe I was wrong about that. So you know, there's been some benefit there. And then, you know, punching all that together with my role with the Hitmen is I do a lot of uh, scouting work there, uh, trying to identify prospects, helping out with the draft, um, you know, keeping tabs on our, our, um, our players and offering up player development tips for our, our coaching staff and, and, and dealing with the management. So, um, you know, the reason I took that, that job was I was actually in the mix for a couple of other CHL GM positions and uh, I got to the point where I got so far within one interview process that I realized, oh, no, I might get this. And <laughs> I, I'm someone who likes to know everything about what I do. I want to have an impact right away. I don't want to fly by the seat of my, my pants. So um, uh, I, I have a really good relationship with our coach with Calgary, um, Steve Hamilton, who's just an unbelievably unheralded coach. And uh, he got me uh, hooked up with the front office for the Hitmen, talking with them. And then I realized right away that, hey, here's, again, like Hockey Canada, here's, here's some guys that could really teach me something. So Mike Moore, um, Jeff Shanouth, and Dallas Thompson with the Calgary Hitmen have just, they've just been, they've been making my wishes come true. You know, they've been the, the you know, 
careful what you wish for type stuff because they've just loaded me up with teaching me what it's all about how to do it i mean you know jeff chanouth is the gm the the trophy to, that when you win the championship in the western hockey league is named after his dad the guy's been a gm in the league for over 20 years there are few people that are are better to learn from and not just in terms of you know the hockey side of the game in terms of the, the networking and dealing with people um this guy is unbelievable so and he's where he wants to be. He doesn't really have any ambitions of going to the NHL. I'm not sure if he did, he'd be there. Uh, you know, his brother's coaching in Carolina as one of the assistant coaches in Carolina. And again, you know, just my interactions and, and watching him present stuff and talking with him, like it's a family that kind of understands things and gets it. And there's a different way and they make it about people. So, you know, for someone like me, who's been very, very technical and trying to learn all these things to have these guys that are teaching me about how it's more about people now and to get that experience again, has been, um, invaluable to me. Like I, I, I can't say enough about it again. It's, you know, it hasn't been the most lucrative decision, but that's not why I did it. I did it because I wanted, I wanted experience. I wanted to learn from people. And, um, I, I got way more than I ever could ask for in just a year and a half and aligning myself with those guys. So, um, you know, that type of stuff is really important. I've made a lot of sacrifices along the way, uh, to get involved in situations where I know I'm going to get really good experience because, you know, the, the short-term element of, of gaining monetary benefit from things, uh, sure, that feels great. You know, yeah, you could maybe drive a better car or, or you know, eat out a few more times. But, um, you know, ultimately, when you, you want to progress in the sport, it's, it's those little elements that eventually pile up on your resume that somebody looks at down the line. And that's it, what makes you more valuable in a position. And, and you know, I, I've been very ambitious, but I've been very cautious in terms of the steps that I take because, uh every position that I get to, uh, I, I want to have an impact. I don't want to be just a guy. And, uh, you know, that comes from, that comes from always being open to learn and the willingness to make some sacrifices. I wouldn't be able to do this without my parents who have, you know, been able to support me when I make ridiculous sacrificial, uh, sacrificial decisions, like, you know, deciding I'm going to go to school in Finland on a bartender from, uh, from Halifax's salary. Although I got to say, you know, if there's a place to be a bartender, it's Halifax, Nova Scotia. That's a drinking culture. I'll keep that in mind, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you know, that's that's really kind of the the timeline of all that and, and the pathway and my my mindset on it all and, and how it's been so beneficial, how I've been able to make a career out of this. I want to touch one last moment on your scouting background. What you're looking for, and even now, what are you looking for in youth players and making that projectable to the level that you're trying to get them to or beyond that. Well, the, the real adaptation in my scouting mentality over the years has been when I first started scouting, you're always, you know, you're just looking for the best players. Who is the best player out there? Who's that? What I learned after a few years is that, you know, the best player at a level doesn't carry over from one level to the next level to the next level. And, you know, again, I was lucky when I started that, that I was in Finland and learning about physiology and learning about, you know, human performance and adaptation. And so being able to apply some of that, uh, you know, in my third, fourth, fifth years of scouting, really changed how I saw who the, who the best prospects were. Um, beyond that, as I started to get involved with skill coaching and, you know, started learning from Corey McNabb about that stuff, uh, all, all of a sudden I saw it in a totally different light. Where scouting now to me is about finding good players with weaknesses that I know I can fix or that I know somebody in the organization that we're drafting to can, can work with. That's where you're going to find the value. So, you know, finding the, the best players is easy. They stand out, you know, they, they always have the puck. They're always doing something. They, you know, they, they make things happen, but it's finding when in terms of, you know, potential, it's finding the players that actually 
aren't able to do some things where most people write them off for not being able to do it and realizing, oh, that's, that's fixable. When this player, this player is at this level already. And when we teach them how to do this, all of a sudden they're, they're going to be, you know, twice the player. I always tell the story of, uh, you know, when the Calgary Hitmen drafted Sam Bennett, everyone made a huge deal because the combine, you couldn't do a pull-up. Well, what's going to happen when you teach this kid to do a pull-up? I always felt like that was the weirdest logic. Exactly. So, you know, the, the scouting to me has really become about finding the weaknesses and the, and the, the things in players that you can dig deeper into and, and figure out how to fix. And that's what, what potential is. That's where you find, you know, that's where Kale McCarr's rise was so huge. Because, I mean, when he was coming up at, at, you know, in the U15 age groups, he was probably fourth on the depth chart in his age group in terms of defense. So think about that. You know, here's the rookie of the year, Calder Trophy winner. Most of the NHL guys that I work with and know talk about him as being in the top five most elite defensemen already at 21 years old. And he was the fourth on the depth chart as he was, you know, U15. You know, when he got to U16, he was, you know, probably he moved up a, a, a notch or two and was second or third. And then when he gets to U18, plays a year there again, he's kind of, you know, behind some older players. But then when he gets to, he starts to play in junior A, then that's where he starts to take off. And he starts to, you know, become this, what we're used to. And, you know, a lot of that came from, I, I, I have not, I, I maybe only worked with one other kid that I would put into the same tier of work ethic and focus as Kale McCarr. Like that was a kid that, you know, you blew the whistle and he's still trying to sneak in one more rep on a drill every single time. Uh, you know, first kid on the ice, last kid off that, that type of thing. The other guy, so who's your new guy, who's, the other, who's guy the other one category 15th overall this year to Edmonton, Dylan Holloway, same association, same mindset. Um, Holloway actually probably has a little bit more intensity to him than, than Kale does, but same focus, same drive. And, you know, when, when people were asking me about gems sort of in this draft, I kept like Holloway is just one of those guys that, you know, he doesn't necessarily always blow you away with skill. It's there and it's high end, but you know, compared to, you know, Lafreniere and guys like that, he might not be in the same category, but he wills things to happen. His desire is, his desire is generational. And, you know, that's again, another aspect that when you're a skills coach and you get to work with guys, you start to see that type of stuff. So to me, wearing both hats has been really beneficial. And you ask, you know, if you're going to ask me what my, advice to anybody who wanted to get involved in scouting is is get involved in coaching learn how to teach skills and get into the ranks and watch kids start to find the kids that fit with those drills that you're learning how to teach and what your strengths are as a coach and that's going to be your value and that's the type of value that you know we've seen a lot of ex-players be the ones that get the scouting roles well they're at a disadvantage i think when things shift into people that are actually learning about physiology and skill development and athletic development, and then going and watching players compared to somebody who, yeah, I, I played the game so I can come and I can watch somebody who also plays the game. You know, to me, the, the best is somebody who's able to put all of those things, check all of those boxes. That's where you're, you're going to find that scouting is not just about showing up and, and watching the rinks and saying who the best players are anymore. You know, when, uh, hopefully when I become a GM in, in, in a league, that's kind of what I'm going to be looking for in a scouting staff is guys that are able to do more than one thing. There's got to be some range there. There's got to be an element that, you know, yeah, okay, you can identify talent, but can you also identify value? And with your background experience, how do you actually pull that out? Within that, I'm curious, what are some of those fixable things you're talking about? What are things that you feel are easily fixable or maybe some things that are a little tougher to do and maybe you don't want to really take on? 
I mean, the, the easiest ones to fix are always going to be technical skills because they're all mechanical and they're all, you know, it's, it's technique. Some techniques harder to teach than others, but most technical skills you're going to be able to look at and say, okay, we make a tweak here. We make a tweak there. We change where your weight distribution is. Uh, you know, some element of that is always going to help. Um, you do end up with some physiological deficiencies, which again, aren't impossible, but are significantly closer to impossible than possible to fix. Uh, and that's, you know, where you end up with kids and I see this a lot of times it's heartbreaking. I remember doing some of the testing work with hockey Canada, with the national teams, and you would have these highly touted, unbelievable hockey players show up and they would do the athletic testing and they couldn't run in a straight line. They couldn't throw a ball. Um, and you know, their bodies are, are, are adapted. Like they've gone through puberty that these are fundamental changes that have happened in their body. And, you know, after a couple of years, you start to realize what happens to these guys and they get one bad injury and they're done. Um, they're not able to adapt at the same capabilities as the other players who have, you know, developed a little bit better. Uh, and so they get left behind. So it's heartbreaking in a, in a sense to, you know, be able to identify some of that stuff, but that's the stuff that, you know, you need to start identifying in young kids like, Oh, this kid needs some work in terms of their flexibility, in terms of their range in motion, their functional movements. Uh, and that's where, you know, it's really important to do. So as you get older and you start to watch some of these kids, if I'm scouting for the NHL draft, that's some of the stuff that you look for. You look for, you know, those real physiological impediments. Um, because unfortunately there's a lot of kids that, that have specialized early and have really ruined their bodies. Um, and so, you know, a lot of NHL teams are doing that through, through the questions, you know, they ask, Hey, what other sports did you play as a kid? That's becoming a, a real serious uh, question that teams are putting a lot of stock into that. You know, you hear about a kid that's played a whole bunch of different sports. Okay. Odds are that even before I test this kid, when I test him, I know probably what I'm going to find out here is that this is a kid that's adaptable and it's going to get a lot better. Whereas a kid that's, you know, oh, I didn't really play any other sports. You, again, odds are, it's not the case every time, but odds are that this kid is likely going to have some serious problems adapting to things. And again, I don't want to say that's always the case because there are some, some people that manage to overcome that, but that's more the exception than the rule. So, you know, that element of things, uh, when you, when you can get a better knowledge base on that, you know, I think we're really moving into a, a, a structure, especially at the professional level where the teams that are going to be really, really good at scouting in the next little while are going to be teams that have, uh, staffs that are aware of, um, physiological constraints and, and ways to deal with the physiological uh, issues that young athletes are going to have, be it from early specialization or, you know, kid, even kids that are developing properly, how to get the most out of them physiologically. So, you know, strength and conditioning coaches are more important now than they've ever been, um, especially really good ones that understand, you know, that functional movement um, aspect of it. Uh, you know, I'll shout out Chris Osmond with uh, Philadelphia Flyers. I think he's, he's one of the guys that taught me the most about it. So, you know, he worked for me for a couple of years when I was with Hockey Canada. Um, snatched up by the flyers real quick and, you know, great hire for them, especially with a, a young core. There's a guy that's going to develop, you know, high level athletes. So, you know, you, you, the, the full spectrum of, of teams now in terms of scouting and what you need to incorporate in it, it's not just about finding the best players on the ice anymore. You got to find, um, you know, really physiologically um, either gifted or, uh, you know, kids that have uh, a base that you can adapt. So, those are the real kind of fundamental issues that are coming up. So it's, it's becoming more and more complicated. It's requiring more and more expertise. And I think that's a really good thing as opposed to 
uh, a negative thing. That's incredible. Um, Kale McCarr, I want to know what was his issue back in the day? Why was he so far down and what did he fix? Real quick here. We don't have that much time left. Uh, Kale Kale was, uh, you know, he was a little bit more of a late bloomer in terms of how he grew. Um, We did a ton of work on his hips as a kid. We were always doing stuff with getting his hips open to the play. He's one of the first kids I remember actually doing a lot of hip mobility stuff. Now I do it all the time. Um, so, you know, if, if memory serves me correctly, it was that, and he was very, very offensive minded. He always wanted to jump up in the rush. I remember having a conversation with him where I was like, dude, we need to make you a forward. So I always tell this in coaches conferences, you know, Hey, you're, you're getting taught by the guy that almost ruined Kale McCarr. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know I, that would ruined him, but I know what you mean. But that's, that was kind of, that was kind of the thing with him was he was really offensive and uh, it wasn't necessarily risky, but, you know, didn't necessarily have the skills to execute all the time, but he worked at that, worked at that, worked at that. And then it just hit and off he went like that kid deserves so much credit, just how hard he worked and how much focus he has. He is just an unbelievable human being. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Well, this has been a excellent episode. Uh, There's no way we can't have you back on in the future. There, we feel like we barely scratched the surface. Uh, Dan can definitely back that one. Up. We didn't even get to Bosnia. <laughs> I can do a whole episode on Bosnia. <laughs> so, but at the end of every episode, we love to leave the floor open. Two minutes, anything you want to talk to. We might give you only a minute since you took took so long and gave us such great answers. But well, uh, floor is yours for a minute. Give us a book recommendation as well. We got a lot of readers out there. I'm going to reiterate everything that I said in this interview dig deep into long-term athletic development model, long-term player development model. You want to learn about the sport. You want to learn about making kids better. Those are the roadmaps. Uh, great book uh, that aligns with that uh, is uh, Range by uh, Daniel Epstein. I just read that. Unreal book. Phenomenal book, but it, it gets across that concept of being well-rounded, that concept of using other things to gain strength in what you specialize in. So, you know, the whole premise of that book is about how breadth is more important than specialization. And uh, he's a phenomenal researcher, a great writer. Um, He's one of those guys that if you interact with him on Twitter, he almost always uh, interacts back. Uh, And, you know, and uh, the sports gene by him, his first book, again, another phenomenal book in terms of want to start getting a base idea of the physiology of things. And the the premise of that one is how it's kind of hardware versus software. And this whole idea that, you know, some kids are born with talent and other kids earn it. Um, Yeah, his two books, uh, I would recommend to anybody. But, But Range has probably been my favorite book that I read in the past two, three years, just because of that whole concept and you know, what I preach. Um, and, and I've, I've lived it. I've experienced that uh, in terms of trying to build, you know, a, a well-rounded uh, skill set as opposed to just specializing in one thing. And I think that's the way the world's going. I definitely think that's the way the sports world's going. So uh, 100%, that's, that's the one that I would say read right now. Couldn't agree more. And where can they, where can people find you? Tell them about your website. Uh, so I have a website. It's just www.mclanhockey.com, M-A-C-L-E-A-N, uh, hockey.com. Um, I have two Twitter handles. It's Ross McLean 77 is my personal one. And then uh, McLean underscore hockey uh, or McLean hockey on, uh, on Instagram. I post a lot of videos of drills, um, some presentations that we do on, you know, helping minor hockey associations and, uh, and, and culture. So uh follow along. Uh, I'm always happy to interact with people and answer questions on those platforms as well. Wonderful. Well, 
Again, thanks for coming on. Appreciate your time, and we'll have to have you back. I would love to come back. This has been great. These are great questions. Thanks, Ross. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, guys. Thank you for tuning into the Hockey IQ podcast. We are Hockey's Arsenal, Greg Rivak and Dan Ducart. Together, we've come together to create a platform and a community to expand our hockey intelligence, hockey IQ, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we're very passionate about seeing this game played smarter and better and continue to develop itself uh, to the next level and staying on the cutting edge of things. So you can find us at Hockey's Arsenal on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We're also at Hockey'sArsenal.com. Uh, from there, you can find some resources and some options to work with us. We're excited to continue this. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, follow, and share. Uh, you can also join up for our newsletter as well, where we're going to tackle anything Hockey IQ related. So we're excited to have everyone here and continue to build. That concludes this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here at Hockey IQ. If you haven't already, take a quick moment to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and drop a review. If you want to be a great teammate, even recommend us to a friend. You can follow us at Hockey's Arsenal on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website, hockeysarsenal.com, where you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter. You won't regret it. Catch you buttes here next week for a brand new episode.